0: Retirement Blues Goodbye Along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path A book by Richard Cowley Chapter Nineteen Episode One A quote relevant to Chapter Nineteen Never permit a dichotomy to rule your life. A dichotomy in which you hate what you do so you can have pleasure in your spare time. Look for a situation in which uh, your work will give you as much happiness as your spare time pablo picasso eighteen eighty one to nineteen seventy three little beck to robin hood's bay eleven miles six hours walking mainly under water there were only five of us for breakfast the two canadians had made an early start and were already on the road "'Did foot-and-mouth disease or mad-cow disease cause you any problems?' I inquired when paying the landlord. "'Only the inconvenience of not being able to move livestock,' replied the farmer whilst drying the breakfast dishes. "'Research into the cause of mad-cow uncovered some startling facts that have global implications,' he continued. "'Many farms suffered from mineral deficiencies, so normal grazing and fodder require nutritional supplements.' To meet this need, bones were being imported from all corners of the world. The process wasn't regulated, and not all the bones came from normal sources. Desperate people in India, scratching a livelihood, gathered bones on the river Ganges. The river, sacred to Hindus, is one in which human remains are cast. In this way, ground human bones were finding their way into supplementary cattle feed to boost mineral intake, Recycling at the extreme, or the market, at its most efficient, the farmer mused, hanging up the dish towel to dry. The journey started well, with a delightful stroll through an enchanted birch wood, complete with a unique hermit's retreat. Little Beckwood was a joyful place of hillicky shaded paths, and soft autumn sunlight dappled through the leafy treetops. The pewter-coloured Beck, verbal seaward, with a lazy indifference to those passing by the air was loaded with the damp freshness of moistened moss mingled with the peppery essence of mouldering leaf litter pure heaven to a rustic type such as yours truly the guidebook described little beck wood in such glowing terms that colleen came along to see for herself although there were no deer badgers or foxes about i don't think colleen was disappointed Two pinched-faced women provided mild entertainment by wielding a plastic woomerah to hurl a ball into a stream for an excitable mongrel dog to fetch. The Hermitage is a massive free-standing boulder weathered down over millions of years and hollowed out by mankind in the late 18th century. Inside the boulder was cool and dark. Its only luxury, a rock bench seat or sleeping platform. Perhaps in days gone by, Little Beck Wood was off the beaten track, and the hermit in residence could enjoy long periods of solitude for reflection and contemplation. Nowadays the C2C passes in front of the boulder, and all trekkers walk by the entrance to the shallow cave, making seclusion a thing of the past. Falling Foss Waterfall was in spectacular form. The torrent wove sparkling beads of lacy spray, which cascaded down a hundred feet to join Maybeck below. Colleen turned back near the waterfall, leaving Peter and I to tramp onwards towards Robin Hood's Bay. At a hairpin bend, where the path left Maybeck, we met and walked with Cambridge and Imperial College, the two lads from the farm. Blast! The lens has come out again, said Peter, holding his glasses in one hand and the guidebook in the other. "'Hold these for a moment, please,' he said, handing me the spectacles, whilst rummaging through his pockets for the Swiss Army knife to tighten the screw. I took the glasses, and noticed the tiny screws were still in place. It would be easy to fix the spectacles. Just slip the lens back into the frame, then nip the screw tight. At that moment I stumbled and dropped the whole shebang into the long-tufted grass on which I was standing. I picked them up, but the loose screw had fallen out.' Peter, I've lost the screw, I bleated, half expecting Peter to blow his top. But true to form, he didn't. That's it, then, he said with resignation, looking disparagingly at the useless glasses in his hand. This has been an expensive trip in terms of spectacles. Don't give up so easily, I said, with feigned bravado. I've learned a lesson in Australia that persistence can pay dividends, especially in long grass. I was staying on a friend's farm and we were hunting wild dogs that had killed several newborn calves. He'd accidentally dropped a small bullet into thick grass. It took 15 minutes of painstaking probing before he found and pocketed the bullet. I knelt to part the grass in the hope of salvaging a little credibility, but with little expectation of doing so. However, sitting on the soil amidst the tangled strands of grass, the sun glinted off something small and shiny. "'Ah, there it is,' I said, as though such miracles were a daily occurrence. I pinched the object and the surrounding grass very tightly, and offered the bunch to Peter. Reluctantly, he held out his hand to receive the tangle of grass, thinking it was some sort of nasty joke. I placed the catch in his palm, and removed each strand of grass, one by one, until only the screw was left. "'Don't move!' I told him, spreading out the meter-square ordnance survey map on the ground, to lessen the chances of losing the tiny screw for a second time. Both Cambridge and Imperial College had been watching this pantomime with great interest. What you need is a jeweler's screwdriver and a pair of tweezers, suggested Imperial College. Under the circumstances, it crossed my mind that a good deal of expensive education had gone to waste. That was not until he inquired, Phillips, or Head. Imperial College disentangled himself from his heavy backpack, and within a few minutes produced a jeweler's screwdriver that was designed for the job. "'Well, boys, I'll be leering of laying a bet on a two-up school for the next twenty years,' I said. "'I think I've just exhausted that much luck with one small screw.' We walked together, chatting for a while, until the younger contingent galloped ahead. Regardless of age, it's exhausting, walking slower than at one's natural pace. Where the trail left the road near Sleeton Low Moor, there was a sudden and very noticeable change in the atmosphere. The temperature plummeted, the hills misted over, and it felt as though rain wasn't far away. We donned our full wet-weather gear, including woolen beanies, and quickly checked that cameras and food were securely double-wrapped in self-sealing plastic bags. In the chill, I realized it had been false economy to leave my woolen pullover in the car. Suddenly, a mighty squall was upon us. A lashing headwind drove big raindrops straight at us. Rain on the face, and the curiously comforting staccato drumming of heavy raindrops on the tight-fitting hood, close against my ear, gave the final day a hint of the surreal. It was like mainstreaming Morse code directly into the brain's pleasure center. The message was loud and clear. Fantastic! Wouldn't be dead for quids. In the distance, across the exposed moor, Cambridge and Imperial College had been caught ill-prepared. Heads bowed and faces turned from the lashing rain. The duo trudged on. There could be little doubt that they were already soaked to the skin. The storm had come upon them so suddenly they'd had no time to unpack and climb into their wet weather gear. For Peter and me, it was easier. We were traveling light. The weather was the wildest we'd encountered for the entire journey. The rain intensified, becoming torrential. The mist, ripped ragged by the gale-force wind, streaked by in long tattered ribbons. With no shelter to be had, there was little alternative but to traipse on through the deluge. Forty years before, I'd been working in the tropical top end of Australia, on an offshore oil rig, trying to shut in a seabed gas blowout. Whilst there, during the wet, I'd experienced many monsoon drenchings. The Yorkshire deluge that day was as intense as anything I'd seen before, and by far the heaviest downpour I'd ever been mad enough to walk through. Unlike tropical downpours, which are usually warm, the North Yorkshire torrent was cold enough to chill bone marrow. The path was a slippery rill of treacherous, low-lying furrows and boggy gutters. Rainwater streamed down my impermeable jacket onto my leggings, which gushed like drain pipes, but on the outside. My boots soaked up water like sponges, making them dead weight and cumbersome. When I turned to see if Peter was okay, he appeared to be moving in slow motion, like a Davy Jones deep-sea diver, weighed down by lead-soled boots. In those slippery conditions, it was folly to move quickly, Great care was needed with each step to avoid skating over into the sloppy-drained trenches that fringed the path on both sides. Along a straight stretch of road, the deluge became even more intense. The driving torrent became so dense and opaque that I could hardly discern Peter's silhouette only fifty feet away. We must have looked a wretched and pathetic pair to those in the cars which loomed through the murk and splashed past with headlights ablaze. Surprisingly, even in those trying conditions, I had no desire to change places with any one of them. I felt like an explorer, not finding new and exotic lands, but experiencing something mystical in a familiar landscape, perhaps like visiting a parallel universe close to home. The open heath of Grainstone Hill was a network of slippery criss-cross paths that headed off in all directions. In the downpour, guidebook navigation was impossible, so I followed the hunched figures of Cambridge and Imperial College, who were just visible up ahead. We were on the lookout for a section that was extremely boggy in normal weather conditions. A duckboard, of the type used on the Western Front during the Great War, was supposedly provided to allow walkers to cross the bog in safety. Even though we never found the duckboard, we managed to get through the boggy zone unscathed. Thank goodness the guards were still smiling on us. At the edge of the heath the rain stopped, and the trail followed a deeply rutted cart track hemmed in on both sides by high hawthorn hedges. I was a few hundred yards ahead of Peter, so I waited for him to catch up. Ten minutes later he hadn't appeared. Very odd, I thought. Perhaps he's slipped and bashed his head. Perhaps he's had a heart attack. After all, he's felt off colour every now and then. The more I thought about it, the more uneasy I became. "'If he's had a heart attack, how on earth will I get help?' I muttered aloud. I was seized by the first hint of panic, whilst trundling back along the slippery, uneven track. Panic is something I'm not normally prone to indulge in, and it's a state that in others I feel most uncomfortable being near. Whilst rounding a bend, I was relieved to spy Peter's iridescent red jacket. He was upright, and gingerly picking his way along the rutted track. "'Thank goodness for that,' I wheezed.' I went behind a bush, explained Peter, or thought I'd sprung a leak. When I'd finished, liquid continued to pour between my legs. My backpack cover was filled to overflowing. What a useless piece of rubbish that turned out to be. Not only doesn't it keep the wet out, it actually collects water, he laughed, fighting to retain his balance among the slippery ruts and puddles. Even though it hadn't rained for some time, we continued to wear our cumbersome waterproofs. The feeling in the air, the cloud formation, and a sixth sense, all suggested that at any moment rain could again sweep in. The guidebook indicated that before the final descent to rejoin the Cleveland Way on the coast, the trail wound through a caravan park. In the park, there wasn't a tree, shrub, or soul to be seen. The bleak holiday resort of neatly arranged cabins had as much charm as a stack of new shipping containers on Liverpool docks. The cabins were similar to Australian dongers, in which I'd lived in the early 1970s, when exploring for oil with the Japanese, in the near-desert region of Sharks Bay, Western Australia. "'Can I help you, gentlemen?' challenged the stocky man, who emerged from the reception building. "'This isn't the coast-to-coast path?' inquired Peter. "'No, this is private property, and you must leave,' he said firmly, but civilly, judging by his sudden arrival. I have little doubt we weren't the first sea-to-seers to make that mistake. Perhaps the site manager should consider taking a feather from the Magritte famous painting C'est N'Espère un and place a sign that reads This is not the coast-to-coast path, as the sensible householder at Richmond had done. Minutes later we located the correct caravan park and were slipping and sliding down a muddy bank to the cliff top overlooking the desolate Moorswake Hole and the leaden North Sea hundreds of feet below. The low cast sky and the feeble light robbed the magnificent cliffs of all colour, leaving them barren and bleak and brutally threatening. With fortifications like these, little wonder the North Sea deployed its forces to the south where its attack on the friable exposed coastline is more successful and ruinous, causing catastrophic erosion and houses to crash down onto the beach.